Ozone. Welcome to the Ozone Podcast, featuring Jaguars.com senior writer John Osher and Jaguars executive producer Dave DeCandis. We decided, Dave and I, to not talk as much at the top of the show. We could go into some things. I'm dealing with, I'm trying to mount my own TV. I'm dealing with that today. Nobody wants to hear about that right now. So today, I've got a guest that I'm excited about, somebody that I've known for 20, 25 years, 25 years, actually, uh, old-time Jaguars fans, and they know who they are. People who followed this team in the 90s will really, really enjoy this. I'm joined by former Jaguars defensive tackle and current radio personality, John Yerkovic. John, thanks for doing this. How are you? No problem, Osher. I'm doing fantastic. You know, trying to avoid the COVID, just trying to observe from afar all the kookiness and the craziness that is happening in this world. So, now we'll get into your time in Jacksonville. Obviously, that's what we'll talk about a lot. But tell me and tell people what you're doing now and sort of how you went from the Jaguars to what you're doing now. What's been your path? All right, I left the Jaguars. I went to the Cleveland Browns in 1999. Played about 12 games, got hurt there. It was a career-ending injury. I tore my hamstring tendon off my pelvis. So after that, I knew I wanted to get into the media. And so I uh, bounced around a little bit. I went over to NFL Europe and did a couple games for Fox. Fox put me on four games uh, during that next season. They gave me a couple games the season after that. It didn't work out for Fox. They said I was too much like Madden and Millen. Which, was that a bad thing? Being too much like Madden and Millen, is that a bad thing? But uh, they said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I did, uh, with Eli Gold and Jill Arrington, I did one year of T- uh, of uh, Arena Football League on TNN. Uh, first game was the War on I-4, which was uh, Orlando versus the Tampa Bay team. So I think Tim Markham was the coach for one, and the Predators – Maybe Jay Gruden. I don't know. Could have been Jay. Yeah, Jay Gruden with the Orlando Predators. So it was fun. Kenny the Glove McIntyre was on the team. So he's the guy that we featured (laughs) that day, and they called him the Glove. So I kind of laughed about it all the time. So I did that for one year, but I was always trying to get in the radio here in Chicago. Then I pounced on it. May 2001, I got on the radio here at ESPN 1000 in Chicago and started with the three-hour afternoon show morphed into a four-hour afternoon show, turned into a real powerhouse from about 04, 05, 06, 07, uh, 08. We used to call it the Afternoon Saloon. We were doing big numbers up in Chicago, and um, it was fantastic. We were having a ball. Then the economy went to crap. The housing bubble burst, and uh, they decided that uh, they were going to break us up, and they let the lead guy go, Danny Mack. It was Mack, Yurko, and Harry. They let Mack go. Um, they fired him. He was making a lot of money. And they said, do I fire 10 people or do I fire one guy? They ended up firing one guy. So i uh, been there ever since and then became Carmen, Yurko, and Harry. And then Harry got into a little bit of a dust-up with the authorities over something that allegedly was oregano and uh, operating uh, while <laughs> maybe impaired. So a couple of years later, they let him go. Then it's been Carmen and Yurko ever since. We've worked in the afternoon. We've worked in the nine to noon slot currently working a massive 11 hours and 15 minutes a week on the radio, uh, hosting from 12 to about two 15 every single day. Uh, and listen, it's, it's a living. We do well. I talk sports. I like sports. So it's easy. 
you know, you watch everything that's happening. It's been a little bit of a challenge with everything we've got going on, but I like to talk so I can talk anything. Obviously, people who knew you when you were here are not surprised you went into radio. It's a perfect fit. I was never surprised to hear you were successful at it. Did you always think, even when you were playing, that this would be your path? Yeah, when I started in Green Bay, I worked at a small place in New Holstein, Wisconsin, called the Altoona Supper Club. I paid $50 to do the show. I'd have to drive an hour and 10 minutes down there, hour, 10 minutes back on a Monday night. And I just wanted to try it. You know, it was 1992. I wanted to try it. I wanted to see what it was all about. So I went down there and the guy that ran about, he owned about four or five radio stations down there. He owned them all, he owned them all in Wisconsin. He goes, listen, you could be pretty good at this. He goes, you got a little, you got a gift of gab because you could be pretty good at this. Got to hone it a little bit. You got to practice a little bit. If you do, he goes, there's a chance you can do this thing for a living. And as you can look at me, I'm not the most handsome fella in the world. So the, the television side of it may not necessarily work for me, but the radio side always seemed to work for me. So, but yeah, I, I knew right away. It was Green Bay. I did radio and television there, came to Jacksonville. They already knew I was doing it. So they automatically just put me there. But Sally got tired of doing the Lex and Terry show because it was getting a little sexual. And he goes, hey, will you do this for me? He goes, I, I don't want to do it. He goes, will you do it for me? And I said, yeah. And then I negotiated my deal with those guys. And I'd go in there every Tuesday, 52 weeks a year. I'd sit and talk with them. But I'd come in studio because, you know, you want to meet the guys. You want to see the guys. You want to BS. Doing a radio show is a little bit more personal. When you're all together in the same room, you guys get a better feel for each other. So I'm still friends with Lex and Terry today. So, you know, it was a good thing. It was a good time. And, uh. You know, then they started with, uh, who's the, um, God, David Lamb was down there. Rick Ballou is down there. I'd the see ball. those guys yeah. at the Super Bowl. I'd talk to those guys all the time, too. I know McManus was doing some stuff on the radio down there with Dave Wydell. So, you know, I wish him luck all the time. We had Tommy on up here uh, when he wrote his book, you know, about his dad. And, uh, you know, Tommy's an entrepreneur. So, uh, you know, it's always fun talking to Tommy. We talked to Baselli up here when Tony was sick, you know, and he recovered. So we had Tony on to talk about COVID and what it was like. So, I, you know, I got a chance the last couple of years. They've had some events. So I've, I've been able to come back down to Jacksonville and have a good time. But I'm a guy that likes to golf. You know, if you're going to bring me down, get me around the golf while I'm <laughs> down there. Yeah, I try to tell uh, Saad Khan – when he had us on his beautiful boat before he sold it to Kismet and uh, Danny Edwards, who I love till, till today, he was always a mensch, real good guy. And uh, I tried to tell him, I said, listen, get us out on a golf course so we can commiserate a little bit, you know, but <laughs> team us up with guys throughout the years, you know, guys you didn't play with. So there's a chance to meet different fellas and, and, and younger kids and stuff like that. You get out there, have a little social afterwards, that kind of thing, you know? God forbid, you know, we get together every once in a while. I saw you when you were down, I think it was 2018, if, if memory serves. And it, uh, that was probably the biggest gathering they've had uh, of former players. What did that weekend mean to you? And, and I guess what did the memories of that Jaguars era mean to you? Well, listen, it was, it was fun. It was new. You know, I came in the second year. So the first year with Tom – you know, was was doing his thing up at Stevens Point. Um, I think that's where they were, Stevens Point. They were up in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, those guys are going crazy. I'm in Green Bay, so we're reading the paper every day. You know, Lagerman's going crazy. Schmange's going crazy. All these veteran guys, Burline's going, what are you doing to us? So I came down the next year. So that's when we are in Jacksonville. We're still trying to figure out who the hell we were and, you know, well, how good we could or we could not be. Had a real good draft with Tony Brackens, with Beasley came in. Uh, Kevin Hardy was the first-round yeah. choice. So you had three guys that were starting, in essence, right away. Had Travis Davis back there. Chris, uh, Chris uh, Hudson was back there. I think Mickey Washington or Beasley – not Beasley, uh, Mickey Washington or uh, Mickey Clark yeah. might have been starting at one of the corners. The defensive line had a nice rotation of the guys that were going to come in between Lagum and Schmenge, Fraze, myself, Kelvin Pritchett, Don Davey. Uh, it was a nice mix that we had in there that Clyde year. Clyde so, was on that team, too. Yeah, Clyde came in late. Uh, Jerron knew him. Uh, Dick Jerron knew him. So I think, uh, you know, he kind of brought him in. And Clyde was a veteran, classy guy. Um, you know, one of those guys that you save for Sunday. Don't ask too much <laughs> during the week. Let him save his legs. But wow, could he rush the passer. He was absolutely fantastic. So it was a real nice room that we had in there. Uh, you know, Schwartz was behind us, but he had gotten a concussion a little bit later in the year. Tommy, Brent Boyer, right. you know, a bunch of good good guys, hardworking guys. And we were four and seven, right? We were rotten. We lost to New England in New England. Uh, Andre Risen caught a ball late, got it down to the one-yard line. We didn't punch it into the end zone. We went to St. Louis. We gained 500-plus yards, gave up less than 200 yards. But we had five offensive turnovers, which put them in short yeah. field position. One of them was returned for a touchdown. So we gave up 10 points and lost the game. That was the game where Willie Jackson got it. We couldn't spike the ball to kick the game-tying field goal. So there are a bunch of weird things happening to us. We were finding ways to lose games. Same way to the Saints, too, remember? Oh, yeah. You went over to New Orleans and dominated them. Don't remind me, brother. Don't remind (laughs) me. Yeah. And then then all of a sudden, Jerron's like, listen, we're 4-7, and and we're in our defensive meeting room. So this isn't over. He said, you can run five off, but you got to bank the first one to be able to get five in a row. You got to get the first one. And I don't know if we're in Baltimore at the old Memorial Stadium and we yeah. found a way to win that game in overtime. You know, and Rob Johnson maybe played instead of Brunel. Brunel might have been banged up and it was Rob Johnson. I don't have the exact memory of right. the five in order, but we didn't blow anybody out. We were winning games by three points, by four points, by five points, just finding ways to win games. Then we started to feel a little bit better about ourselves. You know, then you're at, uh, you know, uh, instead of four and seven, you're at six and seven. Now you're at seven and seven. Next thing you know, you're eight and seven. I think we played the Houston Oilers when it was going dark down with the Houston Oilers before they came to Tennessee Titans. It was that weird game, John. Remember, I think you guys were six and seven. And it was that weird game in the old Astrodome where there were like 12,000 people in it. Right. Nobody was there. I felt, I felt like you were playing in a high school state. Steve McNair was a quarterback, rookie year, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And we went down there and we found a way to win. And then we get, we're eight and seven. Now we got to win our final game and maybe get a little bit of luck. And we play the Atlanta Falcons. And they're running that pain in the ass little zone play. And they had Roman Fortin as one of their guards, a pretty damn good guard. And they were cutting off of him. And whoever was on him, he's a pretty good player. He was a high school wrestler, state champion, if I'm not mistaken. So he's pretty damn good. And they're running that quick screen, quick screen to the sidelines. 
It wasn't over, causing yeah. us major problems, but it was causing us enough problems, especially on the last drive. So they get down there, and Morton Anderson's got to make a kick, and he missed. That's it. He stubbed his foot on the ground. He shanked it to the left side. They missed the field goal. We win, and suddenly we're world beaters. You know, and that's what I remember. I remember yeah. finding a way to win that rookie, that first year I was down there, the second year of the Jaguars. We found a way to win. We found a way to get into the playoffs. Nobody expected crap from us. And then we went up to Buffalo in a very weird game. Two defensive touchdowns, one by Clyde Simmons, one by the other side. Yeah. Uh, Mike Hollis ping-ponged the ball in left, right, and it ended <laughs> up going through. You know, all types of weird, the double doink, but in a good way, a double doink. Not unlike Chicago that suffered a couple of years ago. So – we're there, and it ends up being Jim Kelly's last game and Kent Hall, the center's last game. They retired after that game. So we just found a way to go ahead and win. Then we go to Denver, the infamous Denver game. So we go out to Denver, and Woody Page, the journalist. Can I see the quotes? I'll the journalist, the yeah. He gets on a Monday morning, and he is opining about why Denver should even play the game that they should have received a second bye and automatically gone to the AFC championship game. You know, and there's, you know, what provides bulletin board material? You know, how how effective is bulletin board? Well, what it did was it focused us. We had an ultra focus, realizing that you can't come in here and think that you can take anything for granted. And so all we wanted to do was keep it close for an extended period of time and see what would happen. I think they jumped to a 12 nothing lead, didn't they? Correct, correct. Clyde blocked the first uh, extra point attempt, and yep. then they went for two and they missed two, and so it was an right. awkward 12 nothing lead. Then all of a sudden, our offense started to find a little bit of rhythm. They've got some free blitzers coming, and Mark Brunell avoids them and starts making some big plays. All of a sudden, you start sowing the seeds of doubt in their brain. One of the biggest plays of the game was Michael Dean Perry couldn't get his fat ass off the football field. Yeah. He was jogging. It was a third down. They stopped us maybe two yards to go. And that big fat piece of whatever wouldn't run off the football field. And because <laughs> he didn't, they threw the penalty flag, and we ended up getting a first down and it extended a drive. So it was that kind of stuff that was kind of going for us. And then we ended up beating them 30-27. to 27, And we had to go up against New England and – uh you know, had the ball down in the red zone with a chance to tie the game or take the lead. It was 13-7, if I'm not mistaken. We could have yep. punched that ball in. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, you're the quarterback. you got to make choices. He made a choice, and uh, Willie Big Play Clay ended up stepping in front of Derrick Brown and uh, went the other way. Still had a chance. We stopped him. We got the ball back. And then James Stewart fumbled, and neither Ted Johnson or Teddy Bruschi picked it up and returned it for a touchdown. The cover was in. The celebration started to begin in New England because everybody that bet New England minus the points, all of a sudden we're a winner there. <laughs> Late backdoor cover, and the fans were celebrating extra special. Then we went to the playoffs in 97. I ended up yeah. getting hurt. I broke my leg. So that was a frustrating year for me. 98, we come back, we make the playoffs again. So I was on a team that went to the playoffs three straight years. You know, and that's all you could really ask, a chance to compete, a chance to be in the playoffs. I watched the emergence of Jimmy Smith and Keenan McCardle, two of the best wide receivers that ever played for the Jacksonville Jaguars. I watched Tony Brackens probably become the best defensive player that the Jaguars ever had. 
And Brackens was stud. He was talented. He was fantastic. Brackens is a guy in this town. Everybody remembers the offensive players. That's what you do. And uh, Tony has never really been that guy. Even when he played, he didn't seek the spotlight. I think people know he was good. John, how good was Brackens? Tony was phenomenal. Uh, yeah, when he came in, Lagerman saw him, and we watched him. And uh, you know, as as training camp progressed, a strong, strong, angular body, uh, more strength there than one could imagine. Impressive in the weight room with the amount of weight that he could move. A hardworking kid, intelligent kid, quiet, which is perfect. You know, in a room full of big mouths, having a quiet guy there is not a bad thing either. Um, and he just had a knack, and he had a strength. He had a core kind of like a, a rancher strength, you know, like a guy that's been wrestling bulls or, you know, stuff like that. And he just, from the, you know, his core before core was cool. And he just had a strength <laughs> from, like, his upper thighs through his lower chest that was phenomenal. And, uh, he, you know, he took advantage of it, and he got to the quarterback. And all he had to do was refine his pass rushing skills just a little bit which he did over the course of time and became one of the most dominant pass rushers in, in Jaguar history. He's a great teammate. Fantastic. You can communicate him. I came back and played in the golf outing one time and Tony was there and it was like, you never left the guy, you know, he's absolutely right. fantastic. So much different. I mean, like the media and the public never really saw him, but among teammates, I've always heard. Yeah. Uh, super guy. One of the best. Changing gears a little bit. I can recall when you were with the team and I was with the times union, one of the favorite stories I ever wrote for the paper, I did a big feature on you. It was a headline, yakking with Yurko, the whole thing. Oh, boy. And we didn't run the bad stuff. But uh, <laughs> if I recall for that story, I think we talked in that story about you spending a year with Shula. And, yeah. it, and it seems, and again, if memory serves, like even though you were just with the practice squad, you had a little bit of a relationship with Don, and you liked playing for him, and he liked you. Well, I think he kept me around because I made him laugh. That's what – okay, right. 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 I, 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 you know, I found the lighter, lighter side of things to, to, to BS with and have a good time with. And, you know, he called the guys that's on the practice squad, he called them mullets. And I, okay. I was like, sweet. I said, I'm a mullet. Nice. <laughs> You know, I took it as a, like a thing of joy. I've been given a nickname almost. I'm a mullet. And then one of the coaches pulls me aside. He goes, um, you know, he goes, a mullet's like a crappy fish. You know, people don't eat it. It's, they catch it. They throw it back. They don't do that. I go, yeah. I says, but listen, I said, I'm not a dolphin yet, but at least I'm a fish and I'm on the team still. I go, so that's <laughs> important. I said, I could be a mullet thrown back in, sitting back home in, you know, Northwest Indiana, not doing a damn thing. I said, but I happen to be here. So this small, it's sticking around a little bit more. So I, I always had fun. They, you had practice squad consisted of five guys. We had to do all the work, all the running, all the this. Guy was tired. Yeah. He wanted you in there. You went in there. Guy was playing on Sunday was more important than me who wasn't going to play on Sunday. So that's fine. I did whatever I could, hoping somebody got hurt on the defensive line. So they'd activate me and I could become active. That didn't happen until my second year, in, uh, my first year in Green Bay, my second year in the league. Poor Sean Patterson blows his ACL. I get my chance and my opportunity. Lindy and Fonny gets fired. Holmgren comes in. Don't like the two guys that are in front of me. 
Uh, one of them was Ezra Tuwalo, and the other one was David sure. Grant. So they ended up, I start, play the first game, get six tackles, play well against Kirk Loudermilk and the Minnesota Vikings. And Ray Rhodes and Greg Blosh love me. Boom, I'm their nose tackle. The next year, Ron Wolf brings in Billy Moss. Love Billy Moss, absolutely fantastic. Came to us from Kansas City. Uh, Billy comes in, but Billy's got an Achilles issue. So, you know, I was only probably playing about 12 plays a game. Billy was getting the crux of all the activities in the base defenses. And uh, his Achilles goes down. And I could play against Denver on like a Thursday night or a Saturday night or a Sunday night. It was a weird game. And we ended up beating the Denver Broncos in 93. We went down and we held them to like 58 yards rushing. We go down to Tampa the next week and we held them to an X amount of yards rushing. And Billy's still on the sideline with the Achilles. And then now all of a sudden they're like, ooh, ooh, it's pretty solid in the middle of this kid. So they started letting me play and let me start a little bit more. And then I had a real productive year. But once that year came, 93, then I was established in the NFL. They knew I could play. They knew I could be trusted. They knew I was intelligent. I didn't make mistakes. I was fine. I could have played forever if I didn't get hurt. So by the time you got to Jacksonville, you, you knew what you were doing. Oh, yeah, by the time I got to Jayville, and I knew what I was doing in Dick's defense, which is why they brought me in. You know, Don Davey used to talk to Dick all the time. He goes, why aren't we going to bring Yurko in? You know, let's bring (laughs) him in. And Donnie didn't like playing over the nose, the center. Donnie liked to be that wide three technique. Pritch liked to be the wide three technique, too. Playing in the nose sucks. I mean, you're getting – you can't see it. You got to feel everything. Right. Right. So you got to know the difference between a scoop block and a, a double team and, uh, you know, a guy trying to get away from you quick so you get to second level because they're running a sweep. So you got to be able to feel all that. And you got to be able to do it instantaneously almost. And when you've got a contact and a second contact, you know, you've got to be ready for that and you got to feel it. Those guys like to feel it from the three technique. Nobody liked the one technique. So I was like, perfect, guys. You want me to play over the nose? Ideal. I'll take every rep over the nose. You guys do whatever you want at the three technique. Right, you started on the practice squad. You do whatever they ask you to do. Yeah, listen, it, it, was, it was simple. And Tom Coughlin called me in one time. And he goes, listen, he goes, I'm going to yell at you. He goes, I'm going to get on you. He goes, but you can't stop being who you are. He goes, I brought you here because your attitude and in your sense of uh, lightening the mood when it's necessary. He goes, I'm going to yell at you. Don't worry about it. He goes, you just take it. He goes, but you be who you are. He goes, I need this here. So, all right, Tom, no problem. So, I got a long time uh, fine with Tom. Prisco used one of my quotes one time. Pete did. And I told I, I told you and Pete whenever I talked to you guys, because I'd stay afterwards a little bit and I'd, I'd be chatting with you guys. I go, if I ever say something you're going to use, put my name on it. Prisco used something after a game where I said it always helps if you name names. You know, you, you go into these meetings and Tom said something and he says, guys got to play better, guys got to play better. And I said, you know, some of these, some of these guys think they're all doing okay and they're absolutely fine. I, I said, sometimes you got to name names. You got to tell guys, hey, I need better from you. I need better from you. I need better from you. I watched film. I knew what was happening, what was going on. When I screwed up, I knew it before it even had, before it came on film. I knew I screwed right. up. I, you know, I knew I, I screwed up a call, like an undermass fire zone. I didn't cross the center's nose. I was supposed to go to the other side to, to create more of an even pass rush situation. I didn't, and I clogged everything up. Before it came on film, I knew I screwed it up during the game. 
Now you got to forget about it in the game. You got to move on. But come film time, there ain't no lying from the eye in the sky. The eye in the sky sees everything. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. Now you got to be able to process it. You got to be able to correct it. And you got to be able to move on. The great football players can do that. Okay. They can forget about it, move on. The great football players are also very talented. I guess the story from about 10 years ago, uh, somebody did something with the TU on you that said you might, uh, at that point, that you sort of wanted to coach. Might want I, to still, coach. I still get the itch to coach. Yeah. You know, I was taught by Blosh. I was with Blosh and Jerron up in, uh, Green, Bay. In, sure. uh, in Green Bay. And those pretty, they're two pretty damn good coaches. And Greg taught me offense. So the first thing he brought us in in 1991 when I was there, he starts putting formations up there, and he wants to be able to speak the same language with everybody. So the first thing you got to do is talk the same language. If we're all not talking the same language, we're talking gibberish to each other, and we all got to be speaking the same, you know, identical language. Not what some guy had in Philadelphia. Not what this guy had in college. Nothing. We got to speak our language and what we're doing. So whatever team I went to, the first thing I did was master the defense, the verbiage, and how they identify the offense. In Green Bay, split backs was red. Uh, uh, weak backs was brown. Strong backs was uh, blue. If it was a, a strong eye, it was a blue eye. Brown eye, if it was that. If it was a regular eye formation, it was green. You know, uh, it was regular personnel. It was kings, queens, jacks, jokers. So those are all different personnels that we had. You know, so from that point on, when you speak the same language, that's it. In Miami, it was all numbers. Everything was numbers. The strong side uh, linebackers, the outside guy was six, the inside guy was eight, you know, or vice versa. The outside guy on the right side, or one side was even, the other side was on. So if they had like a 67 cross mix, it was a linebacker blitz to like the weak side. And the those had to know to go to the strong side. They went to the weak side, A and B, and they crossed. So you just had to speak the language and get it. Jerron really ingrained it into me and ingrained the offense. When you see a 36 BMO, I've got to know that when you guys come to the sideline, we all know what we saw was a 36 BMO back on the inside, Mike Backer. So BIM, that's how you get it. And then O is the offside guard is pulling over. So you got to be able to communicate. You got to be able to talk. What kind of motions were coming back and forth? So, yeah, you know, I, I'm 52. Um, in theory, I still got a handful of coaches that are out there that I know. Dougie Peterson's out there in uh, Philadelphia. Sure. Um, uh, Andy's in Kansas City. Sean Payton I went to college with. Um, saw him last year when I was at the Jaguar game. We, him and I took a picture on the sideline, tweeted it out to a bunch of the guys that, you know, I had played with and he had played with. So a lot of guys had fun with that. Um, you know, other guys, Les Sneed's out in the front office. And remember, Les was in Jacksonville sure. with Ronnie sure. Hill. So Les is out in Los Angeles. I always had a great relationship. So there's guys that are still out there and still out and about. There's knowledge here. It's here. But, but you got to work more than 12 hours a week, John. Oh, kid, trust me. I know that. Well, hey, listen, the reason I didn't coach was I didn't want to move everywhere. Right. My youngest daughter is going to be 16 now. She's going to be a junior. In two years, she's going to be in college. It's still something I always think about. You know, I'm not looking to become a gazillionaire, but there's college up here. And I always had an <laughs> uncanny, uncanny ability to kind of know what was happening on the other side. More importantly than knowing what was going to happen, it was what was not going to happen. 
if mm -hmm. I can eliminate screen and I can eliminate draw and I can take the run from the this offside guard over, then I kind of had a little bit of an advantage over the offense. And then basically you played Buffalo, all their calls, they were basically telling you what they were going to do. Same thing with Tampa. If they audible something, you were getting it. You just had to be able to receive the information, process it, and then implement it instantaneously. But you confuse people if you share too much information. And that's kind of the art of it, knowing what to share and what not. So, right. Um, I wanted to circle back to something you said about Coughlin. It was interesting. I think people probably will be surprised when they hear that because they think of Tom as, as the cliche that everybody thinks of Tom as the hard ass. But it, it struck me that's some pretty – that's a different side for him to bring you in and to know that he needs that. He wasn't just a one-trick pony, if you will. No, no. He's more complex than people want to give him credit for. Listen, very intelligent. Very intelligent. Also could read the individual players and what they needed and what they didn't need. You can't coach everybody the same way. Right. Coughlin could drive me until the cows came home, and I, I was fine. You know, it's how I grew up. That's the type of coaching I had. And we were cussed at at St. Andrew the Apostle School by the coaches. Held <laughs> at. Called bad names. I got pinned as a sophomore in wrestling. I come off to the side. The, the two dads go to me, hey, how many lights are up there? He goes, you're flopping around like a fish. You could count the lights up there. There was no <laughs> softness. There was no pats on the back. It's get better. Get better. It's like throwing in, throwing you in the deep end of the pool. Swim or drown. Either way, we don't care. Okay? You're getting thrown into the pool. Survive. So it was a thing of surviving. And then once you survive, you flourish. So you go from surviving to flourishing. You know, that's what it's all about. But, Tom, I love playing for – they go, who's your favorite coach? You're, who's your favorite coach? I played for Shula. I played for Lindy and Fonny. I played for Mike Holmgren. I played for Coughlin. And I played for Chris Palmer, uh, who was our offensive coordinator in 98. Sure with um, with the uh, Cleveland Browns. And I tell him, I go, listen, it's easy when you're in the playoffs. I said, so I go, Mike Holmgren and Coughlin are the same people. They just go about their business a different way. You know, Mike Holmgren, came, you would come to Etchia, a great community. There was an intensity about him. But his intensity was on the backside. Tom's intensity was forward. You saw it right away. It was instantaneous. But the intelligence and the complexity and the thinking man was back here. And he only brought that out every once in a while, you know. And in and, and, and reverse, Holmgren only brought the intensity out every once in a while where Tom brought out the, hey, put the arm around you, understand exactly what was going on. Same people, just different way. They just went about the business just a little bit different way. One of the things I always remember about you, because we have this in common, when I wrote the story about you, I think it was 98 your last year. Right. Uh, one of the first paragraphs was I mentioned that you were the biggest Warren Zevon fan in the NFL. Mm -hmm. And I think, and again, I'm going way off topic. Most people who are listening to this are not Zevon fans. Yeah. But I think the next year he came through Jacksonville Yeah. and he mentioned you. Yeah. I don't know if you ever knew that he mentioned you on stage. Hold on. Hold on. Watch this. Hold on. All right. All right. So I got it framed. This is a letter from the director of the Florida Theater. Okay, gotcha. J. Eric Hart, the executive director. Okay. And it reads, Warren Zevon performed at the Florida Theater last night, and I thought you might like to know 
that he asked about you. I vaguely remember that you once talked about being a huge Zevon fan uh, on the old Monday Night Television show. And word had somehow gotten to Warren backstage. He asked a lot about football questions. When I asked if he followed the Jaguars, he said, no, you know, just this one guy I've heard about. Uh, best of all, you included John Yerkovich in the lyrics, Werewolves of London. Uh, the crowd loved it. An excitable boy that you are, you would have been thrilled. Best wishes to you. A lot of fans miss your uh, in, in, inimitable, I don't know how to say it, not to mention <laughs> your good taste in rock music. This was November 16th, 1999. I received this letter. So here we are 21 okay. years later. I put it up on, uh, I put it up here. Actually, my ex-wife did, Brandy. She uh, put it up here in glass, and I got the letter, and uh, I always show it to people. It's one of my proudest possessions that I have. The great Warren Seabon included me in Werewolves of London, yeah. For the listener, uh, John is now showing me his Warren Zevon tattoo with right. skull and, and a cigarette. Right. You don't want to see the body. <laughs> Trust me when I say it. So this is the second yep. one I got that's a little more pronounced. Yep. That's the one with him smoking a pipe. Okay. The other one I got on my other arm is he's smoking a cigarette. But this one's much bigger and much yep. more pronounced. So he's got the pipe with the uh, glasses on. And, and, uh, and the gun inside, yeah. They, they call him old Velvet Nose, so. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. so, Fantastic. yeah, I'm a big Zevon fan. It was kind of nice when I got the letter. I was like, you know, why couldn't I have been there? It was in the middle of the season. I got hurt two weeks after that anyway. But, you know, sometimes in life you don't get to meet your heroes. Yeah, I was sitting uh, probably, I don't know, 11th or 12th row. And I yeah. can remember I had talked to you about it the year before and included it in the story. And I – so I, whenever I listen to him and when he passed, you're always one of the first people I think about. And the other thing that I always think about when it comes to you, and again, I think more people will remember this. The thing I remember about when you played, beyond anything you did on the field, me and Prisco were sitting in the press room in the hallway where we used to sit. Right. And I remember you, I remember you walking in one day, it must have been a Wednesday or Thursday mid-afternoon, and you went, guys, you're not going to believe this. Some kid is out front, and he's got his head stuck in the Jaguar. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but every time I walk by the Jaguar statue, I think of you because of that, because yep. I think you got a bigger kick out of that than anybody. Yeah, I went out there and looked at it, and I was wondering how the hell the kid did it. You know, it's a great photo. <laughs> you know, yeah. hey, look, Ma, look. Uh. And then he got jammed up, and I went out there, and I went to take a look, and I'm like, boy, this kid, it ain't going to happen. This kid's not yeah. getting out of here. You know, he wished it in. The joy you took from that was still Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to come in there. I used to come in and try you guys all the time. I used to bust yeah, your chops. Coughlin hated that, but you didn't care. Oh, uh, yeah. Tom, what, what are you doing in there? What are you doing in there? I said, Tom, <laughs> if I ever say anything, they're going to put my name on it. And then Briscoe used it and didn't put my name on it. And I'm like, what are you doing to me, Pete? You trying to kill me? You try to undermine me? Now, listen, it happened to me in Jacksonville, too. I ended up leaving. I went to Cleveland. But they brought Gary Walker in. Yep. You know, and Gary Walker, they played with Seth and Ronaldo Wynn when they came in a little bit later, too. Gary Walker was a better football player than I was. That's just the way it was. <laughs> right. And the young kids were less expensive. So, you know, same way I got replaced in uh, in Green Bay with Santana Dodson and Gilbert moved to the nose. Gilbert was a much better nose tackle than I was. That's just the truth. Right. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff happens to you. And so when they ended up bringing Gary Walker in, I remember him in Tennessee, and I'm like, he's a pretty good player. Air walk play. <laughs> and, you know, he ended up being, you know, along with Stroud and along with Henderson. 
uh, you know, they came in, they had a nice run of defensive tackles in there. Yeah. And another thing I'm proud of, both Ronaldo and Seth Payne, listen to me. And I said, listen, I go, you guys want to play in this league a long time? I said, what you got to be able to do is let these coaches trust you. You got to let them know that you're not going to make mental mistakes out there because mental mistakes are coach killers. If you right. mentally screw up out there and you go the wrong way, I go, that will kill your football team more than if you get your ass kicked. Okay? So don't make mistakes. I think Ronaldo played 14 years. I know he's up in Washington at the end. Seth played with, uh, with Jacksonville, then shot down to Houston, uh, finished his career there. He's on in the radio right now. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I like to see it. And he was a fourth-round pick out of Cornell. Um, uh, Ronaldo was a first-round pick. But it was good to see guys you talked to and guys that you, you kind of gave a little bit of advice to. They followed it. And for my birthday, their rookie year, they got me golf balls. So, I mean, how <laughs> nice are those kids, you know? I appreciate okay. it, guys. Titleists. I don't think the Pro V1 was out yet, but they got me some titleists. <laughs> Final question on these lines. Um, I think a lot of people, when the name gets mentioned, a lot of people remember the television show, Yakin with Yurko, that you did with Hickam. What did that show mean to you, and how many people you think you reached? And now, do people in Jacksonville still sort of mention that? Is that still a big deal to you? Yeah, it's you know, it, it was a chance to communicate with um, with an audience that may not have gone to football games. Right. You know, they liked the Jaguars, but they never were in a position to go to the games. And for me, it was always fun. You know, that was a relaxing time for me. I didn't prepare. I never prepared. For anything. I don't prepare for my show to watch sports. Right. Whatever's coming at me comes at me, and then I, we talk about it. We react to it. We, we engage in conversation. You read articles. I read articles all the time. To me, that's not preparation. For me, that's just everyday life. You know? You can so do it anyway. It, I love doing it, A, because it's something I wanted to do and I wanted to develop, but it was a chance to talk to people that weren't at games, that didn't see what was happening and what was going on. You know, and it was a way for me sometimes to explain, listen, guys, not everybody can stop and sign autographs all the time. You're going to get one faction of the groups, the big guys that are going to be able to sign one day. Uh, the little guys, the defensive back, the receivers, the running backs, the linebackers, they've got to go inside uh, tight ends, and they've got to lift. they got no choice. There's not a choice for them to stop and sign 57 autographs. I go, the big fat guys, the defensive linemen and the offensive linemen have to sign today. So we're going to sign. And you had to run in, and they got your jersey. We're only here today. We're from Tallahassee, and we're eight. We're from Ocala, horse country. Come on, will you sign this for us? And and you know you get a chance to explain what the uh, mechanics are to an individual practice. If you didn't get them in the morning, you can get them in the afternoon when there are actually doubles. You know when there are actually two practices a day, right. not the one practice right. a day and the walkthrough. You know. They'll never know, John. The kids will never yeah. know. Well, and it wasn't even bad. You know, other guys were doing triples back when Vermeil had the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. yeah. We never took the pads off with Shula. Never. When Holmgren came in, that's the first time. And training camp was six weeks. We started yeah. in July. And the Monday of the first week of the NFL season, we were out of training camp. Holmgren made it a little bit different. We took the pads off after three weeks, but he said, if you can't play with speed, practice with speed because I'm putting the pads right back on he goes don't hit each other do not take each other to the ground he goes I want movement and I want a speed 
I want efficiency. And that's what we gave them. And as long as we gave it to them, we didn't practice. We'd play the Bears in the 10th week of the season, the 12th week of the season. Tom Thayer and Hilgenberg, Bortz, uh, the tackle was Van Horn on the right side, and it could have been uh, John Wojciechowski or somebody on the left side. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, they were beat half to hell talking about how they were still hitting in practice. They had Wonstadt and even with Ditka. They had Wani. Wani was beating the living H out of them. They didn't have a shot against us. Not a shot. We'd go in there. Even if they played their best game, we're going to find a way to beat them at the end because they were just beat half to hell. So right. sometimes you got to be smart. Holmgren was smart about it. Life pretty good for you, John? I got no complaints. Like I got two boys good. here. My Nico and Jake are 24, and Jake's going to turn 24. My daughter's going to be 16 here. I optioned the old lady off to AAA Buffalo about four and a half years ago, gave her her walking papers. <laughs> So, yeah, life's not bad. I get along better with her now than I did when we were married the last three, four years. So it's fine. I got a good relationship with her. She's still the mother to the kids. It's fine. I told her to keep the house. She didn't want it. I kept the house. Hey, that's fine. I keep the house. But once the boys leave and my daughter goes to school, it's way too big. So I'll have to, uh, you know, probably move it and get myself a little bit of a smaller place. With no stairs, my body's beat half to hell. It hurts. (laughs) Ankles, knees, hips, lower back, middle back, upper back, wrists, elbows, shoulders, neck. I don't get headaches, though, so I feel good about that. I know from talking to people who were around this team and who are still fans here that uh, for a lot of people, you are still their favorite Jaguar from that area. You touched a lot of people down here because of your approach, because of who you are, and uh, I could talk to you forever, but we'll wrap it up for today. Uh-huh. I can't thank you enough. It's great catching up with you, and uh, I appreciate you doing this very much. I appreciate it. Hopefully, they're going to allow fans in stadiums. Uh, my plan is the Bears are coming down week 16, 17, late in the year during the holidays. So my plan is to come down to Jacksonville at the end of the year, play a little bit of golf, maybe bump into Davey and uh, Furick and uh, Lee Kaplan and a couple other people down there, and uh, go out to dinner, play a little bit of golf, come to the game, enjoy myself, and then fly out of here. V-O-Zone. Five. 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 All right, this is the Ozone 5 with John Yurkovic. John, your last binge watch. Uh, Banshee. I'm watching it right now. It was on Showtime. Ozarks also, but Banshee and Ozark. The last station or song you listened to in the car? Something from Post Malone. Now, I probably know the answer to this because of where you live, but uh, Jordan or LeBron? Oh, Jordan, easy. Jordan, Kobe, LeBron would be one, two, three for me. Your last shore you did around the house. I, I just watered the uh, plants outside. I've got a fig tree, I got a bamboo tree, and I had three tomato plants. I just watered them before I came into the house to do this. All right, I care about this. Our younger listeners won't. But your your top three Zevon songs. Whoa! Rolling the headless Thompson Gunner, the French inhaler. And Desperados Under the Eaves. The third one's my number one. Is but, it? Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful yeah, little ditty. Yeah, 15 that could be on my list. Yeah. But I oh, love God. rolling the headless Thompson Gunner. And the French inhaler is every girl I ever met at 2 a.m. in a bar in Calumet City, Illinois. <laughs> it used to look like something death brought with it in its suitcase. 
Another pretty face. Devastated. Yeah, it's good too. <laughs> John, thanks. Cheers. All right, that was John Yurkovic, and as expected, as promised, uh, that was fun. It was easy to predict it would be fun. Anybody who followed the Jaguars in 96, anybody who knows anything about John knows he's a fun guy. And Dave, I'm, I'm curious. Um, I covered uh, Yurkovic, so I knew from the locker room, from being around him, what a personable guy he was, what a good guy he was. I'm wondering, as a fan of the team at that point, I'm assuming, you know, I never thought of John as one of the major personalities of the team. Uh, not that he wasn't a locker room personality, but he wasn't Jimmy Smith. He wasn't Keenan. He wasn't Mark Brennan. He wasn't one of the core guys. But my impression from talking to people is that people did identify with your guy. Yeah, I think people uh, loved him. I mean, his personality was uh, kind of bigger than life a little bit. Uh, like, I, And also, he was always on TV or always on the radio. He used to do a segment for one of the Jaguars TV shows when I was a kid, I remember, called Yakin with Yurko. And you know the thing I remember about that, John, is he went to a Krispy Kreme donut place. And you know how the Krispy Kreme donuts, they have, like, the conveyor belt where they make all the donuts? And he was talking about wanting to lay on the conveyor belt and, like, go underneath the icing thing and be coated in yeah. icing. Um, I, like, I, for some reason, I always remember that. Sure. Um, he, you know, he had a great personality. I remember going to training camp as a kid. And I was a kid that used to, like, search for autographs and stuff. And I remember when he would stop, he was basically holding court with all the fans. So, you know, cutting right. up with people and, and talking to kids and, like, joking around with people and stuff. Um, and that may be and, one where the media perception of somebody is different than the fans. I covered the team. I was working for the Times Union at the time. So I focused on certain stories. I covered the game. Probably didn't always listening to every radio station the way a fan would. It's one of those players that the fans knew and loved as much as those close to the team. I appreciated uh, John when he played and I appreciate him now. I enjoyed that maybe as much as a podcast we've had so far. And with that, we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. I appreciate John Yerke to join us. I appreciate Joe Fortunato and David Kansas making me sound better than I am. I don't think this one sucks. I think this one was great, and uh, we'll see you next week.